Welcome back to the Forgecast. My name is Neil Sergren. I'm Sam Towns, and unfortunately, Alex still can't be with us. He is still uh, on his way to moving to Tasmania. He's there now, but he's got to get his house set up, so he'll probably be gone for another couple of weeks. And before we move on with the episode, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor. Today's episode of the Forgecast is coming at you thanks to Gamerco Artisan Supplies, the supplier of choice for Aussie blacksmiths and bladesmiths supplying you with everything from blade steels to forge burners. Visit their website at artisansupplies.com.au and follow them on Facebook and Instagram. So, Sam, tell us about your week. Oh, well, my week's um, been pretty busy. I've been getting back into the workshop, trying to get everything running again after the medieval event that I had weekend before last. Um, I've been, over the weekend, helping my wife make a handle for the hammerhead that I made her. We didn't quite get it finished because we had a, you know, a bit of a family emergency come up, but uh, it's on its way. It's an interesting, interesting handle design. I'm looking forward to seeing how it works. Um, but other than that, I've been working on some hand sanding of some blades that I made a while back. I've got a Bowie knife or a, a spear point Bowie knife that I'm currently working on for a customer. It's going to be my first time using stabilized timbers, which is going to be fun. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit scary because it's, you know, it's like a $55 block of wood. Mm. <laughs> so they're I've expensive. Be really kept. They are, yeah. Well, especially because this is uh, professionally stabilized by um, a friend of mine, Mark Sinclair, who runs Sinclair Stabilized Timbers here in WA. Um, and he makes some of the finest stabilized timbers that I have ever seen. So, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit terrified to be working with it, but uh, it should make it a pretty awesome knife in the end. How about yourself, Nils? What have you been up to? I finished off uh, the axe that uh, you probably saw on Instagram. I did. I, I saw that. It looks freaking brilliant. I love the new design. I love just, you know, the simplicity of it. I yeah, love it looks, that. Um, it is, it's very Swedish in, in yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. inspiration. You can tell because it looks a lot more... It looks a little bit like the uh, Grandsforce... Um, Forest axe. Small forest axe, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, it's a, a mix. Uh, well, I just d- designed it in my head, basically, but but of course I'm inspired by you know like the the the, the giants of Sweden, so to speak. You know, of course. Oh yeah, you've got to take inspiration from things that have been working for hundreds of years. Yeah, and also Hultafors has some really nice forest axe designs, and I basically just drew it, and then uh, I mean it looks uh, a lot like like them. But I mean, if you compare two axes, they usually look pretty similar. Uh, well, that's it. There's, there's I mean, nothing original under the sun. No, but I mean there there is like big differences if you look at every angle of it. For example, uh, I grind the profile and I polish the profile as well. Yeah, uh, Grandsforce doesn't do that. Uh, I also have an octagonal handle uh, yep. up to the uh, which is rounded uh, at the bottom but octagonal at the front. There there's a lot of differences and I mean there there there's a lot of differences but from Oh yeah, from a, there's, there's always going to be unique, you know, yeah, kind of. But I'm, but looking at them uh, from a distance, they look pretty similar. Yeah. But I mean yeah. uh, they are the best so. Uh, yeah, well, we, we, inspired we'll, by but not co- but not uh, copies of. 
No, no, of course not. So exactly. I've been doing that. I I've been t- taking some photos. I want to like I want to do this a lot more now. Doing regular axes that are meant for like tools instead of weapons. Yep. Uh, weapons are fun, but it's not as fun as this. Actually, yeah. Uh, it, it, there's usable stuff is always fun. Yeah, it is. So uh, I'm trying to focus more on that in the future. Uh, but also, I've been uh, also doing some leather work, trying to figure out yep. the perfect sheath to uh, like easy, fast for me to do that can come with the axe. And um, yeah, I just watched some YouTube videos and I did it. So, so it works. Yeah, there's fine. a lot of designs out there. So. I'm waiting for uh, for a shipment of. Uh, you know, working <coughs> stuff, so I can do that easier in the in the future. Cool. So before we move on with the tool of the week, we have a question, and Ooh, it's from uh, our old friend Layton, uh, who says he writes like this: "Hi guys, thanks for answering my question regarding seal for my planned Japanese chef knife. The discussion was very helpful. Could you now could you now please discuss the tempering procedure?" My last knife I did two cycles of 225 Celsius in the kitchen oven. Any help would be much appreciated. Also, hell yeah to the angle grinder knife. (laughs) Thank you, Leighton. Thanks, Leighton. That's a pretty good question, actually. Yeah, it's a very good question because I'm going to leave this to Sam because he knows it uh, a lot better than me. But (laughs) I just want to say that there are a lot of ways to temper a blade or an axe in my uh, case and oh yeah hundreds for, for me it's basically just try and see what happens uh, so, for for instance when the with the axes i can do them in the oven or i can do it by torch but the important thing is to try to keep some of the hardness that's my yeah. you know thought process going into it but there's a lot of more depth to this question and i'll let sam take over from here uh, just just before I do, I, like, I do get into it. Um, so, what what, what uh, method do you commonly use for your axes? I know for swords you use the torch because yeah. you don't have a big enough oven. <laughs> Maybe but, I should uh, do, do the Derek common... oven. Yeah, <laughs> 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 got to make one of those. Uh, but yeah, do you do you more commonly use an oven or do you um, more torch temper or something like that or latent heat temper? Um, I do most with the torch. And uh, sometimes with the heat from the uh, from the uh, forge, um, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a strange thing that I it feels like I'm in the pilot seat. You know, I can control everything yeah, that happens, yeah. and I can always check with the file to see that I'm not losing any hardness. There's yeah. a I, I like that way to do it, but uh, I mean, finding a way to do it in the oven is probably the safest way to do it. Well, I mean, it's it's the safest and the most controllable. That's I mean, that's why most professional bladesmiths will temper using temperature controlled ovens or kilns or something like that. It's because getting a consistent, even temper on something is very difficult to do with latent heat or uh, torch tempering or something like that. Um, not to say that they're you know they're inefficient. Like I, I've used torch tempers and and um, latent heat tempers. Latent heat tempers uh, for those people who don't know is when you quench half of the piece that you're uh, you know, hardening and then let the heat that's in the rest of the piece temper the material that you're using. I'm, I, te- I use that a lot when I'm doing uh, cold chisels or hot chisels. I'll heat up you know, th- the th- last third of the piece, but I'll only quench a quarter and let that last little bit of red heat soak back into the rest and watch the mm. colors change, You know, scrape some of the scale off and, and watch the colors run um, to get a temper on that. 
As far as uh, chef's knives go, uh, for our question, Leighton's question, um, the most controlled method is obviously an oven, which he's doing, which is great. Um, it would depend on the steel that you're using. I believe we were talking 1075, weren't we? Mm -hmm. 1075, 1095, I think was what he was asking about. Yeah. Uh, in which case, well, 1095 is a lot harder. It's a hyper-eutectoid steel, so hopefully you've got temperature control in your oven or you're really, really careful with your heats when you're forging, uh, when you're uh, tempering from, uh, quenching from the forge. Uh, 1075 is a little bit more uh, kind of uh, friendly to beginner bladesmiths. But either way, 225 is probably a little too high on the temperature range. Um most steels that you want around, you know, most knives, you want them around 57, 58 Rockwell. Um, for kitchen knives, I'll actually tend to shoot for more like 60, 61 uh, Rockwell. Higher hardness, but, you know, slightly more brittleness. Uh, mainly for like veggie choppers and meat choppers, because if, you, if you're going to be chopping pumpkins with it, you want it to be a little bit softer so that you're not going to snap the blade. Um, but for a thin Japanese kitchen knife, you want a relatively... Medium hardness, you know, 56, 57 Rockwell, which should be around the 175, 180 degrees Celsius range. Uh, anything above that, you're going to start bringing it down to those 52, 51 Rockwell, which it's still going to be a good knife. It's still going to be a usable knife, but you're not going to get the edge retention that you should get out of a high carbon steel like that. So yeah, um, keep tempering it in the oven. That's fine. You don't need to scrape the scale off or anything like that. That's one of the big things uh, with oven tempers is that you don't have to do anything it, to it before you temper it. You can literally just take it straight from the quench, and I recommend that you do take it straight from the quench, straight into your oven, uh, and start it tempering. Uh, I normally do two two-hour cycles. Uh, most of my blades get tempered at about 175. I tend to set my oven a little bit lower than what I want, because a lot of ovens, especially if you're not using like a piezoelectric, um, oh, sorry, not piezoelectric, that's the igniter. Uh, if you're not using a PID controller, um, so if you're not using a very, very, very powerful temperature controller, then the PID that's built into your uh, oven will let it overshoot by about five to 10 degrees, depending on how cheap your oven is. So set your temperature about five degrees lower than you want it, and then it'll probably hit that that right temperature. Mm. Um, so yeah, 175, 180 is normally what I shoot for with my kitchen knives and hunting knives and stuff like that. Uh, if I'm going for a little bit lower hardness, I might go 165, 160. Uh, anything below 160 and you're looking at seriously brittle steel. <laughs> but again, you can always refer to your manufacturer's uh, documents on the specific steel you're using to find out what the best temperature for tempering is. But thank you for the question, Leighton, and uh, hopefully that helped you. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you just uh, reach back to us and we can help you with another question. Yeah, just tell us that you're freaking useless, Sam, and you need to answer your <laughs> questions more concisely. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. Um, um, for the tool of the week, uh, we're going back to somewhere we have been talking a little bit about before, but now in another, you know, view or not from another angle and not an angle grinder uh, but, uh, <laughs> um, oh, so so i'll just tell you a bit of a story before we go in um as i've said i built my forge myself i built it from um yeah steel scrap steel and with a hairdryer 
but uh, I've been using coal, uh, anthracite coal or whatever it's called, uh, for the yep. last uh, couple of months, and I love it. It's super good and it's uh, efficient for it's cheap in the long run compared to charcoal, and mm-hmm. uh, it keeps heat very good and it's easy to forge weld in and everything. It's work. It works great, but. Every t- every day after forging, I'm feeling, you know, especially if I've been standing there for a long time, I'm feeling a little bit sick, you know, like I don't feel yeah. well. And I think it uh, it boils down to the, the fumes uh, that yeah. are extracted from the coal during the heat uh, process. Coal, coal smoke is pretty nasty, that's for sure. Yeah, and uh, it doesn't feel, uh, I mean, compared to when I use charcoal, um, it's uh, like horrible because charcoal wasn't bad at all, in my opinion, not for me at least. Mm. But well, it's, just coal- like wood, it's just like wood smoke. Yeah, but but the the coal smoke uh, feels very bad. And I was speaking with my girlfriend about this, and I t- told her that uh, in Germany they have this uh, forge called Beckma, which is a gas forge. So I mm-hmm. was uh, planning on investing in one of those. Uh, and so I did. So I ordered it last Friday, so it should come here this week uh, so mm. our topic for the tool time is gas forges tool pros and cons. time tool time so <laughs> pros and cons of gas forges basically yeah gas forges um i i'm a i'm a massive lover of gas forges so i was more than happy to have this conversation i'm yeah. actually interested i've never seen a beckma forge i will admit um so i'm really interested to see uh, what that setup looks like, and and you know what kind of production you can get out of that. I'll tell you uh, everything a, about it. Are they a forced air, uh, forced air gas, or are they a venturi gas, or naturally aspirated? I don't understand the question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so does it does the the burner come with a blower, or does it just come as a burner and just you know you hook it up to a gas bottle and away you go? You you hook it up to a, a gas bottle, and then you go. Okay, so it's a naturally aspirated rather than uh, blown. I think so. I think so. I don't know. Um, that's the view I got from it. I th- the thing is that uh, a Norwegian uh, gentleman called uh, Jürgen, uh, I think his name is, okay. he bought one, and I saw it on his Instagram. So I wrote to him and asked him if he could help me with the uh, with the decision if I should buy one of those, and he said, "Yeah, super easy." And uh, pretty cheap in the. I mean, it's only one burner. I think he has two burners, and it's yep. and it it's originally made for farriers, I think. Uh, okay. But yeah, I mean, uh, the size oh. of it is perfect for an axe billet or two. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Um. So for those people who don't know gas forges, uh, there are two main types of burners. There are a couple of different style, styles, but we won't get into the super detailed stuff. Uh, the basically the two different are. Uh, Blown forges, or um, yeah, blower forges, or there are naturally aspirated. So um, think of about it as a fuel injected engine and a naturally aspirated engine with a carburetor. Mm. With uh, blown gas forges, you run your propane or your LPG or whatever it is through your gas line, but then you'd also have a blower hooked up to the intake, uh, you know, to the main forge uh, blower burner body. Mm-hmm. which would be blowing oxygen in, uh, you know, at a, at a far higher rate than, um, than normal air yeah. uh, to increase the amount of oxygen to LPG, which means you can get a lot more heat, a lot more consistent heat over time 
You also tend to have a lower PSI rating, um, so you run your gas at a lower pressure uh, and with a larger orifice. So you're using lower pressure, high volume, and then using the air to get your heat. Uh, naturally aspirated, which is what I use, uh, use a Venturi system, which is basically the gas is uh, piped in through a very small orifice, normally about one millimeter uh, round. Um, not sure what that is. I think it's like two thousandths or four thousandths of an inch. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, it's forced at high pressure through a small nozzle uh, and it actually goes through an open air uh, cavity and the pressure of the gas flowing through that open air cavity sucks the air in with the gas, and that's how it gets its oxygen to burn. Yeah. Um, so the Venturi system uh, has disadvantages and advantages. The disadvantages are um, that as the pressure in the tank drops, which if anyone's watched one of my live streams, they've probably seen me have to change tank because my tanks freeze over. Because you're using such high pressure, um, you end up sublimating a lot of gas out of your tank which actually causes cold, uh, it causes the uh, liquid gas to cool down to the point that the outside of the tank freezes. Um, and as that happens, the pressure drops off, and the lower the pressure, the lower the heat. Um, so with a blown forge, you get less of that. Um, not entirely none, but you do get less of that. Um, the advantage is, is that with a Venturi burner, if you have no power, if you have no power outlet or anything like that, you can still run your forge because it doesn't require blower. Mm. So, um, that's, I mean, that's one of the reasons I really like my Venturi burners is because I use them when I'm doing like forging demonstrations around the place and you don't always have access to, um, yeah. to electricity. So, um, and plus I, I'm, I'm just cheap. <laughs> so I got the, um, the info page here from uh, Beckma and uh, cool. it's a one, one blower forge and it's, it looks like the, you know, what you, what you told me, uh, that it's a natural, um, Air that naturally comes aspirated, in. Yeah, yeah. So it's a yeah venture, uh, yeah. So uh, and also, I just wanted to mention, I don't know anything about gas forgers, so I'll try <laughs> to ask the the common you know questions that you w may want to know because I I want to get started right away. So Sam is going to give me like a beginner's course in how to start using your uh, gas forge. So it crash says here, course in gas forges. Yeah, crash for course in gas. Oh, I can say it. <laughs> Say that five times fast. <laughs> okay, so so it's uh, twenty centimeters in. Uh, it's it's like a square, so it's twenty centimeters times twenty centimeters times eighteen centimeters. So it's pretty big, still small, but big enough to get a billet in. Um, big enough to do the job. It's made out of steel, uh, and uh, it has ceramic uh, um, isolation and ceramic isolation. Yep. Yeah, and uh, the. Um, the temperature temperature goes up to twelve hundred degrees Celsius. Nice. In, so it is, is capable of welding. Yes, it should be. Uh, and I watched a video on how they 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 actually started it and made it run. And they had this yep. temperature, uh, you know, reader. The thermometer. Yep. Yeah. So so they could uh, see. So so it looks uh, very awesome, and it has two. Opening, so you could actually forge swords in it and longer pieces as well if you want to. That's but, that's always uh, a good thing. Yeah. So, but I'm mostly gonna use it for my axe billets. Of course. Uh, so yeah. So the All first right. well, question sounds like a. Oh, sorry. Sounds like a decent setup. You know, it's a pretty standard for a for a gas forge. Yeah. So so the first question I would probably ask is like, what is the first thing that I do when I get it in the mailbox, so to speak? 
<laughs> well, I mean, the first thing is I, I'm not, you know, because I'm not sure how they're going to ship it. Uh, most gas forges uh, on you know, that you buy online will come with, you know, the forge body itself, and yeah, you know, it's all set up, and you basically just have to plug the burner in, and away you go. Um, some will require you to, you know, actually line the forge yourself. Um, you know, like they'll send you the body, but with all of the, uh, KO wool and all that kind of stuff separate, and you'll actually have to put that in yourself, cut in your burners and all that kind of stuff and can get quite detailed. Most of the time they'll have a how to video on YouTube of how to set it up. Yeah. Um, so if you're, if you're buying a, a commercial, commercially available gas forge, uh, which I haven't, but, um, you know, I've have friends who have, um, then a lot of the time you're going to have to make sure that you look up how to build it properly because, you know, you don't want to screw it up. But anyway, uh, assuming that it's all set up for you and the burner is already hooked up, which um, the burner should basically be in complete ready condition, basically ready to plug into your uh, forge and away you go, you're going to be hooking it up to a gas bottle. Normally you'll have a ball valve or a T-valve on the burner somewhere that shuts off the gas at the burner rather than just having to rely on shutting the gas off at the bottle. And the reason for that is safety, because it takes a while to twist a, uh, a bottle um, cap down to close the bottle off, whereas a 90 degree turn on a ball valve and you can shut the gas off immediately. So that means that if there's any uh, any time there's a flare out or something like that, you can just shut it off uh, real quick. Yeah. Um, so if you've got all that plugged in, you're going to hook it up to a gas bottle, you're going to set it up. I recommend running a relatively low pressure in the beginning. Um, so if you're, you know, if it's a naturally aspirated, I'd run about 10 PSI, maybe 12. Um, uh, what does that mean? PSI? So that's pounds per square inch. Uh, it's a pressure rating. Okay. Um, if, I mean, in my, in the case of my burners, I buy my burners from Gamico, who is our sponsor. Uh, they sell both large and small burners and they come with the hoses and the regulators. Uh, some of the photos show them having a regulator with a gauge, a dial on it. Uh, if you get uh, a regulator with a dial, you can actually set the, the pressure by just turning the knob and watching the dial change. Um, whereas mine do not have a dial. But with mine, the further you screw it in, the higher the pressure goes. So you want to screw it all the way out. And basically, you want to basically shut the forge off. Have a fire in your gas forge. So, you know, either light some newspaper on fire or have a blowtorch sitting in the forge. And then slowly increase the pressure until the burner lights. Yeah. Um, the last thing you want to do is turn on your gas burner and then go to fire. I know that there's a lot of people on YouTube who like to do it that way. Uh, Liam Hoffman is one that I see doing it all the time. Turns his gas on and then from five feet away flicks a match into the forge and watch it go woof and right. you know, it's just really big awesome fireball and stuff that's that's great that's fun but it's also really really freaking dangerous because if you don't manage to ignite it properly you can get what's called a flash out or a blowout which basically means that you get a giant fiery gas burning you know fireball through your workshop and potentially kill yourself so don't do that um, also even when you're turning on the forge with the fire in the forge, make sure you don't have any part of your body in the way of the main gas chamber, because yeah. even when you're turning it on with the fire in there, there will still be a little bit of a whoosh of fire out the front of the forge. So yeah, I've seen make that. sure that you, 
Yeah, it's a really good way to trim your beard if you're uh, <laughs> if you're if you're a little too close. So yeah, yeah. As, um, as you as you're turning up the the, the gas, as you're r- turning up that regulator, you want to shut the regulator completely off, put fire in the forge, and then start slowly turning your regulator on until the gas forge lights itself. So once it's lit, oh sorry, yeah, and yeah, and so the uh, the big thing is that you want to have the oxygen turned way down low. Now on most venturis, they'll have a little screw cap on the burner top itself which limits the amount of oxygen so it opens and closes a hole around the jet around the burner jet okay you want to close you want to close that off uh most of the way um because that way it'll give you a very light flame rather than that real roaring roaring kind of jet flame that you want from an actual forge um, so yeah, I'll let you ask another question. <laughs> yeah, that's that super good information because these are the things that I'm wondering. And the other thing that I'm wondering is like, uh, so I set the pressure from the from the actual gas bottle into the the forge, and uh, no, then... so not the not the gas bottle, the regulator. Oh, the regulator. Okay, yeah, it comes. Yeah, to so the basically, the regulator the regulator slum goes into the gas bottle. You yeah. turn the gas bottle on full, but you have the regulator turned off. Okay. Um, and and make sure your ball valve is closed as well, because you, you if you turn the gas bottle on um, without closing the ball valve and turning your regulator off, then the gas will immediately start flowing through your gas forge. So you want to make sure that the line is completely closed before you open your bottle. Uh-huh. Okay. So yeah. what you'll do is turn your ball valve off, sh- um, turn your regulator down to zero, then open your bottle... Turn off your ball. Uh, turn on your ball valve. So open the ball valve, and then start slowly increasing the the uh, regulator pressure. Okay. So so the other question is like, and we're coming to this uh, for for the topic of the week. We're coming to like, uh, we're going to get into this in more uh, specific uh, spe- specifics. But before we do that, I, I was just so uh, tr- uh, for is for you know managing the temperature because you were talking mm-hmm. last week about you know increasing the heat how do you go about there like tweaking the forge you know so when you're tuning a gas burner um the the two things that are making heat is oxygen and gas Mm. so a mixture of those two is what's creating the temperature inside the forge um now if you've got a regulator if you've got an actual gas regulator with a dial uh like i was talking about before that actually has the numbers per you know like psi numbers on it um, I normally run, if I'm running my jet, which my jet, I drilled out to 1.5 millimeters, which is quite large for a Venturi burner, but I've got quite a large forge. You, uh, most Venturi burner, um, jets will be about 0.8 millimeters or one millimeter. Um, if you've got a 0.8 millimeter jet and you're not getting enough heat out of it, then drill it out to one millimeter. And the jet is the little bit inside the, uh, the air canister that blows gas into the blower, into the burner tube. Um, I don't recommend doing that. If you don't know what you're doing, get someone who knows what they're doing to do it. (laughs) But, um, yeah, uh, basically if you've got a one millimeter or one and a half millimeter jet, I normally run around 20 PSI. Um, and air on full, so I open my venturi completely to get a welding temperature. Um, and so basically, if I want to go lower pre- uh, lower temperature, all I do is I turn my gas down and I turn my air down. So one of the easy ways to tell pressure, like I I don't have a dial on my regulator, so I have to go by flame length. And with a 
With a gas forge, one of the things is if you've ever used a blowtorch, you'll know that there's that little length of blue flame yeah. before the orange flame. Yeah. That happens in a gas forge as well. Okay. So if you look through the front of the gas forge, you should see a length of blue, uh, a length of blue inside the yellow billowing flame. Normally, if my if the length of the blue flame for me when the air is on full is half of the width of the uh, forge body, so if it's half the height of the forge body, that's normally sitting at around twelve psi. If it's sitting touch almost touching the bottom of the forge body, then that's sitting at around twenty five psi. So twenty psi is about like you know half an inch to an inch off the bottom of the forge. And that's at full air. If I shut the air off, then that pencil, uh, that blue pencil flame is going to slowly close down and you're going to get a lot more billowing yellow uh, flames. A lot of gas forge control is learning to read the fire. If you've got flame tendrils of yellow licking out of the forge and not a really loud roaring sound, then that means you've got more gas than air. If it's really loudly roaring and there's almost no fire coming out of the front and the pencil flame is quite long, that normally means you've got more air than gas and that means that you're having an oxidizing fire, which is something that you don't really want uh, because that's going to um, scale up your piece a lot faster. Um, you might think it's getting it up to heat faster, but LPG can only give you so much heat or propane can only give you so much heat. So you're actually probably ruining your uh, billet by doing that. What you want is a happy medium where you've got little yellow flames licking out the front, but you've still got that nice bass roar. Um, and that's something that you're looking for. Is that almost sounds like a jet plane uh, going through. Uh, and that really can depend on the length and size of your, burn, of your uh, forge as well. If you've got a really long forge, like Flynn Sharp, my friend, has got a really, really long forge and one burner in the middle, uh, that doesn't sound very loud. Because the length of the forge is, you know, kind of concealing that uh, that sound from him. Whereas mine is open both ends and quite short, so it uh, it roars pretty loud. Your <laughs> um, hearing protection is recommended when using gas forges, yeah. unlike with charcoal and and uh, coal. That's the one thing about gas forges is that they're very loud. But uh, yeah, the, the controlling of the fire is purely just controlling the amount of air that you're putting in. So that little cap that covers the air hole, the, uh, the less air holes you give it or the less space you give it to uh, bring air in, the, uh, the cooler the flame is going to be. And then the less gas you give it, the cooler the flame is going to be. Um, normally, when I'm well, normally when I'm heat treating, I'll set the flame to the point where it's just at 800 degrees, you know, at Celsius. So it'll, it, I basically leave my piece in there and it goes up to temperature... Um, and stays there forever. A really easy way to do that is to get yourself a thermocouple, which is um, a temperature reader for really, really high temperature stuff. Like your average thermo uh, thermometer is not going to do it. Um, but yeah, a thermocouple, they're relatively cheap on eBay. Um, they won't work at welding temperatures unless you buy the super expensive ones. Um, because if you try and put a thermocouple in a welding temperature forge, you'll just melt the end of the thermocouple off. Yeah. <laughs> I've actually had friends do that, so. Um, but yeah, if you, if you want to do it for heat treating, it's a really good way to get really accurate heat treating in a, in a home forge. Just buy yourself a cheap thermocouple off eBay, 
Um, one that can at least read at least 900 degrees Celsius. That's what you want, at least 900 degrees Celsius. Because critical temperature sits somewhere around 820 degrees Celsius. Mm. Uh, critical temperature is the stage at which all carbon has gone into fluid in the iron matrix. So, um, yeah, it just, yeah, and then just tweak your forge to keep tweaking it until you get that right thermocouple reading and then kind of memorize where you've set everything so that you can recreate that or memorize the color of the inside of the forge. That's a really useful way to do it as well. Mm. So uh, before we go to the topic of the week, just one more thing that I wanted to like ask is, and that's, I remember one time we were discussing discussing gas forges and uh, the fact that I have melted incredible amounts of steel in my uh, car, uh, <laughs> coal forge. Yep. And and I remember you saying that that's very hard to do in a gas forge. It is incredibly difficult. Um, unless you're running super high PSI, like you're running ridiculously high amounts of gas and you're running lots of air and you leave the piece in there for about three hours, you're not going to burn steel. Like you can burn steel in a propane forge. Uh, and I've known people who have done it. Um, but unless you're running ridiculous amounts of pressure and you've got really, really good insulation and you're running a lot of air, it's very unlikely. So as long as you're really good about not leaving your piece in there for five hours, you'll be fine. Um, the worst thing that can happen in a gas forge, uh, unlike a coal forge and stuff like that, coal forges and charcoal forges are much better at maintaining what we call a neutral atmosphere where scale doesn't form quite as quickly. Gas forges, it's a lot easier to create an oxidizing atmosphere. So an, an atmosphere in which scale develops really quickly. And like I said, you want to control that. So you want to add more gas and a little bit less air so that you're not developing scale as much. I've got to the point where I can control mine that if I polish a piece of steel, and it's a really interesting way to test things, it looks really cool. If you polish a piece of steel, really bright, shiny, you know, steel gray, and stick it in your forge, and you don't want to wait until it gets up to red, but you leave it in there long enough that you think it should be changing temper colors. If you're running a neutral fire, while it's in the forge, it will stay silver. And then the moment you pull it out of the fire, it will immediately turn to blue or gray or whatever it is, the temper color that you're thinking of. Huh. Um, yeah, because the temper colors are simply oxidization on the surface of steel. It's just the steel rusting quickly. Um, and it's the, it, because it's changing on a molecular level, it reflects the light differently. And so therefore that's why it changes colors because it's just a thickness of the scale building up. And the, the thinner the scale is the, the thinner the, the oxide layer is, the brighter the color is. So you've got, you know, the yellow is a very, very thin layer of oxide. And then as the oxide builds up, it goes to that purple and then that brown and that blue and then that gray. So yeah, if you've got a neutral fire in your gas forge, you should be able to stick a shiny piece of steel in there and it will stay shiny until you pull it out of the forge. All right. So uh, thanks for that, Sam, and I hope it was helpful for a lot of you guys uh, thinking about getting a gas forge like I am. Yeah, so, and if you want me to clarify anything, please feel free to send me an email at samtownsblazemith at gmail.com or you can send it to the.forgecast at gmail.com and we will answer it in the next episode. Ask.forgecast at gmail.com. Oh, sorry, that's the, <laughs> yeah, the, I was thinking the.forgecast is our Instagram. 
That's our Instagram. And you can write yeah. uh, questions there as well. So you moving on, uh, the topic of the week is something that I'm pretty familiar with, and I know that Sam is too. And the topic is forge welding. Forge welding, which I thought fit quite well with the topic we just had. Yeah, yeah. It, it sure does. So, uh, what's your? Do you want to kick this one off? I feel like I've I feel like I've been doing a lot of talking in this episode. Yeah, uh, I did in the beginning, so it's no it's no problem. We'll probably <laughs> talk a bit more. Uh, well, so you you do a lot of forge welding uh, with axes and stuff like that. And I know you've made some Damascus before. I know you did a Damascus knife for your YouTube channel. Um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a while. I back. mean, going back and watching that, it's like ah, uh, it's so ugly. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, we all start somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. so um, I believe that it was, was it last week or the week before that you were having troubles with, um, you know, grain growth in your yeah. edge, your edge bars? Mm-hmm. So, so the thing that I do is that I forge out a piece of mild steel uh, approximately to the, the shape of the axe that I want. I punch the eye and everything like that, and, but I leave it thick, so I cut it open at the end, and then I insert a coil spring uh 5160 steel uh, temp uh, that i have um, normalized so so i weld those two together and the process uh last time uh, two times ago when i made an axe i probably overheated the steel and you can see that uh like sparks are flying from it uh, yeah. then it then it's too much like uh, you could could go uh, it could go well uh, especially if it's uh, if you have extra pieces of um, high carbon steel, you know, like if you yeah. have uh, have it sticking out a bit, but mm. um, it's also like very close to melting. I think because if you leave it yeah, in well, just a tiny bit more, it will probably melt, and that's no good. Yeah. Uh, so and you've, burnt, you've burnt burnt the carbon steel at that point. And you've probably lost a bit of carbon out of your steel as well. Yeah, so so that's something that you want to look out for, and that's probably what happened. I don't recall that that happened because I was so shocked when I gra- because after when you've uh, welded, uh, and then mm-hmm. I heat treated it pretty soon after that, and yep. uh, when I was grinding off the 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 scale of the heat treat and uh, the tempering, I saw cracks all over the the the, um, the high carbon steel, so mm-hmm. I had to like okay. Let's go back and figure out what did I do wrong, because uh, at that point it's just it's scrap, just uh, throw mm. it away. It's you can't use it for anything. It's it's uh, sure. nothing to do, uh, and I just had to restart the process and uh, and do it again and be extra careful. And something that I did after was that I was super careful with the normalizing the steel, uh, yeah. because that's something that I know that I forgot to do. Normalize right. it, normalize it like four four times or whatever. Uh, I mean, <laughs> just imagine it's super tense and it it has been sitting in a car or a truck or, and and been bumping for like ten twenty years or something, and then you take a piece out of it and you heat treat it. Yeah, it's gonna. Yep. It's like you know doing a, a mountain climb and then being all sore in your muscles and then go out and uh, you know. Uh, jump it's not gonna try to run well. a marathon <laughs> it's not gonna end well you need to relax and uh, massage your muscles and stuff like that so that's how i see it and uh, yeah, so, so the other acts came out great but you know it's a it's a scary process 
Oh yeah. So, so well, I mean, the big thing, the big thing about steel is that it doesn't necessarily have to get to the sparkler level to have been overheated. Um, it a lot of the time it's down to time and temperature. Um, I'm not sure you, you've watched Alex Steel. Um, you know, I, I know you've watched a bit of Alex Steel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when he did, uh, I believe it was, uh, which one was it? I think it was when he was forge welding some roller bearings together for his, um, forged fire challenge knife. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the 52100 is one of those steels that goes red short really quickly. Um, red short being that it, uh, turn the grains grow in size ridiculously fast at certain temperatures and it just crumbles like cheese. Um, and there are quite a few, uh, steels that do that. And a lot of the time you can actually not have a, a, you know, at that sparkling temperature and it happens in gas forges quite a bit, which is funny because we were just talking about gas forges. But if you leave a piece of high carbon steel, especially hyper eutectoid steels like 52100, like O1, W2, and a couple of the others, um, if you leave them at close to welding temperature for, you know, way long, uh, you know, a, a lot of time, they will crumble. They will crumble like um, like cheap Swiss cheese. Um, so a lot of the time it comes down to time and temperature. If you're welding, you shouldn't be leaving your steel at welding temperature for too long. Yeah. Um, you're, you obviously don't want to pull it out of the fire too soon because you don't want the welding, you know, you don't want it to be under welding temperature when you're trying to weld. Mm. But one of the, um, one of the scary things is, is not leaving it in there too long. Um, yeah. in the coal forge, obviously there's the risk of melting it or burning it, but in a gas forge, there's just as much risk in having it go red short and completely obliterate itself on you. A really good tips that because uh, I I got really sad when that happened. So I, I you know okay let's just take a moment go back to the roots and watch the videos that I watched the first time I did a forge weld. So I went back to Jan Switzer, I went Torbjorn Orman, and just watched those videos again and was really, you know, really yeah. studied what they were doing like and compared it to my process. And uh, the thing is that uh, because. Sometimes when when you're forge welding, it feels like you're safe when those sparks are coming out. Then you're it's gonna yeah. weld when you hit it. Yeah, sure, it's gonna <laughs> weld probably, but it could also crack. Uh, but well, if you watch Young Switzer, has a really really great. Uh, uh, he's awesome at forge welding. He says like, when you take it out, don't uh, uh, don't take it out too late and don't take it out too early. When the, the when it's uh, yellow uh, ish uh, bright yellow yeah. and it's it looks like it's sweating steam out from it yes yeah, it's, it's smoking it's almost smoking yeah it's almost smoking um, that's the perfect that's, perfect temperature and, that and, works if you're using flux if you're not using flux the steel will never get to the point where it's smoking yeah that's the only that's the big thing is because what that is is the borax sublimating so it's actually going straight from, you know, the solid. Well, I, I mean, it's, I suppose it's boiling at that point. Um, but you actually, that, that's the borax actually boiling off mm. the steel. Um, so borax flux is a really good way to mark your welding temperature. You don't need um, borax to weld some steels. Like if you're welding mild steel to mild steel or wrought iron to wrought iron especially, you can weld them without flux. Um, all you need is a neutral fire. And... Um, Roy from Christ Centered Ironworks has done quite a few videos on forge welding mild steel, and he never uses flux for his initial welds. Sometimes he uses flux to help with uh, forge welding in the toes of welds, but um, the majority of the time he uses no flux for mild steel welding. 
Uh, if you're welding high carbon steel, you need to use flux because high carbon steel um, oxidizes way faster than mild steel. Yeah. And the oxides are impossible to move. Uh, but uh, I actually, this is pretty fun because last week I was in a in a phone call with a guy who runs a steel uh, supplying company in Sweden. We're not sponsored or anything. Oh. I just want to mention it because yeah. he's a, such a nice guy. His name is Peter yep. Lassis and his company is named Castra Steel. So if you're in Sweden and want uh, those commonly used, um, uh, you know, ingredients for Damascus or stuff like that, go to Castra Steel. He's he got all of those th- things that you need. Uh, cool. So super nice guy, but I was having a chat with him because I'm planning on going to visit because he lives pretty close to me. So I want to become friends with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, so um, he was telling me about borax because borax in Sweden is really hard to get if you're not uh, if you don't have yeah, a special in... uh, state, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, certificate, license. yeah, license thing, because yeah. it is dangerous to in- inhale. Yes, it is. Uh, and one of the things that could happen if you inhale it too much is that you could uh, it could um, screw with your re uh, like with your sperms basically if you're a man and probably with your yeah. eggs if you're a woman. Um, so so your reproductive organs. Yeah, reproductive. <laughs> Me in English, you know. So <laughs> that's all right. I'm 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 not making funny. I'm just correcting. I'm just helping. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Uh, so uh, I would really. Uh, I, I, I've been doing like after he said that I was just about you know to put on some borax on a piece of steel so I was like oh so, <laughs> so, so what I did was when I before I open the can which I have borax I take a deep breath and then put it on and yep. into the fire and then Ooh, I, I, yep. so, so I'm safe but but you should probably wear a respirator when working just during the forge weld yeah, for sure. I mean, I, if I did more forge welding than I do now, I probably would uh, have a PAPA 3, uh, PAPA, P-A-P-R, um, 3 uh, respirator, which is a respirator which is designed specifically for um, gaseous fumes, because not all respirators are made equal. You've got respirators that are good for dust, respirators that are good for, um, you know, like moisture and stuff like that, but you've also got respirators that are good for gas, and they tend to be more expensive. Um, so yeah, I don't have one because it's ridiculously expensive. I mm. tend to, when I'm forge welding, I'll have like a fan or I'll do it in the wind and I'll have the wind blowing away from me when I'm doing it. Um, that's the safest way to do it. Or you yeah. can hold your breath like Nils does. Um, <laughs> it's, fun. it's fun to see how long you last as well. So, but yeah, well, I mean, there are companies that sell forge welding, um, you know, that they actually sell, um, flux. Welding flux, but all welding fluxes are bad for your health, mm. unfortunately. There are some ways you could... Uh, there are older ways to uh, to do it as well. Um, I think he was speaking of... Uh, uh, what was it? Granite or something like that? Uh, uh, some, it would have been silica kind of, sand. Some, yeah, I was going to that. And some sort of a sand which you could yeah. use. Um, I'm not entirely Silic- sure. Silica sand has been used for oh, millennia, I would imagine, ever since you know iron has been used. Because uh, silica sand is actually a um, the slag that comes off of bloomery iron when they make iron bloom. Um, that is normally silica that is melted out of the the soil that was mixed in with the uh, iron ore. Um, but yeah, silica sand. Um, you can actually get it. It's, people call it play sand. It's the sand that a lot. A lot of the time, it's the sand that they use in like um, 
uh, sandboxes and stuff like that for kids. It is? Um, the, the white sand, yeah. Um, the, that's normally silica sand. Uh, beach sand is not a good way to go because a lot of beach sand tends to be um, seashell, like cracked up seashells and stuff like that. Um, so unless you're dead certain that the beach sand you're collecting is silica sand, and silica sand tends to be very white, um, then you can't use that. The, uh, the only thing about welding with silica sand that is different to borax is that you can't apply the sand at a low temperature. Um, with borax, you can apply it at like a dull red and it'll melt onto the surface of the steel and protect it. Um, the way that uh, medieval smiths and uh, some modern smiths who use silica, I know a couple of people in the US who use silica occasionally uh, for medieval reenactment, they actually flux in the fire. So you get the piece up to almost welding temperature or at welding temperature and put the sand on the piece while it's in the forge um, because you need it at welding temperature for the sand to melt mm. uh, to create that fluxing surface. So yeah. it's a little bit more difficult to use, but it is it is a viable option. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, I mean, this is definitely going to be a, a series of... Uh of a topic, you know, so <laughs> yeah. we're, it's this a is fairly it for the forge uh, well kind of subject topic. So, but uh, but I want to to like move on a little bit from the borax uh, into like the actual ways to go about it because there's uh, you know there you know you know the thing that you know you do it like they did it before and you you don't cheat you know like that and um, yeah I w- I was all about Cut. that in the beginning but uh, now, fold and nowadays kind of I am. Yeah, nowadays I uh, actually do it like this. I, I, uh, I do weld my high carbon steel in, uh, just on yep. the edges, so it sits there, so I can then fold it. And I, I I'm actually doing a video right now uh, of my axe making process. So cool. I'm, it's probably gonna be up in a couple of weeks, um, or a, uh, a couple of weeks, and I will show you exactly how I do. No, sh- no, like tricking the camera or anything. <laughs> this is how I do it. Um, yep. And I, I just tack weld it in place. Then I, uh, yeah, you will see. So, so, so that's yeah, I mean, a tip I could uh, say. There are a lot of forge purists who will tell you that um, if you use a welder of any kind on your work, you're immediately no longer a blacksmith and you should turn in your blacksmith card. I'm not one of those people. I don't believe that, you know, adhering to tradition is great. I love traditional stuff. I I would love to have a medieval forge set up and do everything traditionally for fun. If I could afford to, I would. But as a practical means, as a modern day blacksmith in, you know, in these times where we need to make money, um, utilizing modern tooling like grinders and, you know, powered blowers for your forge and welders are, is, is, you know, entirely viable. And I mean, when I when I make Damascus billets or um, Sanmai billets, I recently made a couple of Sanmai billets. Um, I made one for a forge welding live stream, which is still on my YouTube channel uh, from a couple months back. And I made a billet for the live stream that I did recently. I didn't show the process of making the billet, but I forged that into a Scandinavian knife. Um, all of those get weld tack welded at the ends to hold the billet together because I could wrap it in wire like they used to do, you know, all those years ago, but why? <laughs> it's, you know, it, it takes 
less time, it's more secure, and you know it's easier to weld it than it is to wrap it in wire. Yeah, um, and also with axis, when you when you have cut the groove there where you want the forge welding piece to be, there tends to be like a little piece uh, where it doesn't you know weld up, um, like a little gap between the mild steel and the high carbon steel, just at the uh, of the on the end um, on the ends of the axe, mm. not in the middle uh, where the actual blade is. But uh, so, so tack welding it together. Uh, removes that uh, basically, so mm. it also makes it easier. But my my goal, of course, is not to be able, uh, not to need to use it. But at where I am in my process at the moment, is what make it what's comfortable for me. Basically, yeah. I mean, with with axes, you can chisel in teeth on the uh, on the piece of high carbon mm. steel to hold it in place inside the uh, the axe billet. And you can see a uh, hundred different YouTube videos on how to do that. Um, um, basically, you basically just forge your uh, bevel on your piece of high carbon steel that you're going to insert bevel in towards the, um, in towards the mild steel body and then cut uh, along the top and force these little uh, spikes out either side of the piece of mild steel with a, with a cold chisel and then heat your mild steel blank up with the uh, with the V cut open, and then mash that V cut around those spikes, and that'll actually stop it from spitting the the bit out. And that's how they used to do it, you know, for for centuries. Yeah. Um, and I mean that's that's a perfectly viable option. I've done that myself. Um, it can invite cold shots in the material, but normally the cold shots are way behind the cutting edge, so you'll never see them. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but, yeah but, I, I mean, mean that, that's uh, how I did it in the beginning as well. But but making that happen uh, has been rather difficult. So I just tried to tackle yeah. it instead, and I found that to be a lot easier for me at the moment. So absolutely. I mean, it, the the guys. One of the things that people forget is that the guys forging back in medieval days, if they had access to the tooling we had, they'd be using it every day. Yeah. Because because you know like. You think about making, let's say, a sword. The amount of hours that it took to make a sword, because it would be one man would make the blade, then the next man would polish the blade, then the ne- then they hand it off to another person to put the hilt on, mm. uh, and it might even be two people: one person to make the grip itself, and the other person to make the guarded pommel. Um, you know, man hours out the wazoo. We just don't have that. We're one man in a workshop. We need to cut corners where we can. Well, cut corners traditionally, I suppose, uh, speaking. The quality of the work and the the design of the work and the overall function of the work is not affected by the tooling we use. Um, I mean, for instance, I've forge welded pretty much everything I've well, actually everything I've forge welded historically, you know, in in my workshop has been forge welded in charcoal, um, and that was mainly because I couldn't get my gas forge tuned to the point that I could get good welds out of it. Mm. So yeah, I, I did all of my forge welding in a charcoal forge. I tried to do it as traditionally as possible. And then the other day I decided that I'd got my gas forge tuned enough that I should try some welding in it. And I welded it and it was spectacular. I loved it. Awesome. I want to do so, I want to do so much more of it. And very soon I'm going to be doing some Damascus for the YouTube channel because I, I love the idea. But um, yeah, it, it, the thing is, at the end of the day, forge welding is one of those things that's been a tradition for, for years and years. For those of you who um, do watch my YouTube channel, you'll know that I did a forge welding demonstration at the medieval reenactment event I did a couple weeks back, or yeah, a couple weeks back, um, 
and the, the video that I put on YouTube was just of that first welding heat uh, using a traditional method. It was wire wrapped together. It was wrought iron and high carbon steel getting stacked together and welded um, for a traditional Viking style knife that eventually I'll make out of that billet. Awesome. <laughs> it's still sitting on my shelf. But um, yeah, the, the, the big thing is, is that forge welding is something that has been done throughout the eons. It's been necessary. These days it's no longer necessary, but we still do it. Because uh, A, it's fun. B, you can make some really good looking stuff. And C, in, especially in people's like Nils's case, it's cheaper and easier. Yeah, easier is the way to go. Because I mean, <laughs> if, if you're going trying to forge uh, an axe out of 4140 or, or a C45 or 5160, you're going to have a bad time. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's unless horrible. you've got a power hammer, yeah. Unless, unless, unless you've you got like a yeah, unless you have yeah, a power, power hammer. hammer or a press or something like that. I mean, I'm I'm thinking I've got some fifty one sixty that I'm going to try and make some axes out of, but I have the advantage of having a striker um, <laughs> work with me, so he swings a big big hammer and does most of the work for me. So that, that's the only reason I'm doing it. If I was doing it on my own, get stuffed. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, even the mild steel, it's it's a lot softer to work with, and it's. I mean, I can oh, forge. I can forge an axe out in two and a half hours, maybe by hand. Hey, um, absolutely, yeah. maybe less if I'm really uh, fast. But, really but going I mean, on it. Yeah, if I really do my <laughs> rage uh, thing. But uh, <laughs> but um, I mean, doing it in forty one forty with with higher carbon steel, it's it's too much. Uh, it's uh, too hard to forge. That's it. I mean, I know people who've made hammers out of 4140 solo, just doing it on their own. And I recently made a, a hammer eye punch out of 35 mil round on my own in a live stream. And yeah, I could make hammers. Like, you know, I make hammers, most people will know. Uh, for those of you who don't, I still have a couple available in my Etsy store. Uh, <laughs> but um, I could make hammers on my own if I wanted to, but it would take me like three times the amount of time if I didn't have my striker. You know, like it, with my striker, I can punch uh, a hammer eye hole through thirty-five mil round stock in one heat. Yeah, um, incredible! It it takes me about five heats on my own. <laughs> so you know, it's it's you know, it's just it's just a matter of time, you know. Mm. And it's the same with forge welding. Like forge welding is necessary in the axe making industry uh, for for you. Like I mean, Grand's Force use uh, you know, they use their own specific mix of steel, but it's similar to forty one forty as far as I'm as far as I understand. Yeah, it is. Uh, but they they forge it out of solid stuff because they have like a hundred and ten dollar a hundred and ten hundred ten dollar hundred and ten ton. Um, rotator, uh, rotary presses. Now, uh, <laughs> yeah. if you don't know what a rotary press is, you should look up Grant's Force Forging. It is ridiculous. Yeah. It's basically this thing that's got like 15 different dies in it and it just constantly jumps up and down and it's like 110 tons of force. And they just basically flip the billet from one spot to another to make the axe and it just pops out the other end in like one heat. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's insane. Uh, it's it insane. is. It's crazy. But the thing is, is that that's that's what makes it more efficient for them. Mm, for a guy working on his own, or a, a person who's you know wanting to to do more traditional work, having a mild steel body and a high carbon steel edge is a more traditional and b a lot cheaper because you're not spending you know because I mean you, per kilo a mild steel is probably half the price of forty one forty. Yeah, it's, it's half. It's half. <laughs> yeah. I just checked. And, and also, um, also, and also, and also one important thing is that 
sorry, just kind of wanted to mention it when we're here. Also, the, the other thing, in some countries, it's hard to get the C45 or 4140 in, uh, like, axe stock. Usually yeah. it's round, and that's horrible, because then you need to flatten it out first, and then... So, so there's yeah. a lot of pre-work. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's true of a lot of countries, to be honest. Like, it's, it's hard to get um, decent axe and hammer stock here in w here in australia um unless you're willing to work with round which i work with round anyway i like the the way that round works for hammers but mm. yeah for axes it's a pain yeah um but yeah so, so forge welding is something that i plan on doing a lot more of very soon especially with my gas forge but i'm also planning on doing a series on forge welding in a charcoal forge um you know just teaching people on the the various idiosyncrasies of those two different formats for forge welding, but it's something that I definitely plan on doing a lot more of. Uh, and obviously Nils does a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Every with time various the forge, pretty much. Well, you know, and that's true of forge welding. If you're getting into blacksmithing, if you're listening to this podcast, you're just getting into blacksmithing and you want to know, you know, what, what the rule is for, for forge welding and, you know, like how, how to get a forge weld, your forge welds will fail. There is always going to be a forge weld that fails. Mm. Um, and you might get 10 forge welds that fail. Just keep going for it. You know, understand the theory, understand what you're trying to, you know, like what you're trying to achieve. Watch some YouTube videos, listen to our podcast, um, <laughs> get a better idea of what you're, what you're looking for when you're forge welding and then just try it, get out there, do some forge welds, stuff them up, learn from the mistakes and just do it again. Uh, and that's the only advice I can give you. And John Switzer from Black Bear Forge has said the same thing. Basically, the only way you're going to learn is by making mistakes. Yeah. And the only way you can make mistakes is by trying. So, yeah, don't don't think that you can walk into a forge after listening to the Forgecast and watching Black Bear Forge and just, like, smash out the perfect forge welds. You're going to fail. <laughs> yeah. Like, speaking from experience, I've I've done a lot of forge welding in the past, and... I still fail at forge welding. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All the time. All the time. <laughs> but I mean, sometimes it's minor things that could be corrected. Like, for example, uh, an axe I did this spring uh, for a guy, one of the first like shopping axes that I, a forest axe I made. Um, yep. I was so concerned because when I had forge welded it, uh, you know, you get small, small cold shots where the, the mild steel meets the meets the high carbon steel and sometimes yeah. you could just grind that off and it's gone but sometimes there's a monster lurking behind uh, mm. and so so yeah, you that, don't know so so and that comes from that yeah that comes from blow uh, hammer blows that haven't been behind the the line of the forge weld mm. you um, could also blend those out later if you want to oh yeah if you use a ball peen hammer um it, for dressing toes there's nothing better than a ball peen hammer you know, high heat flux and a ball peen hammer. You just slowly tap that edge of the uh, the weld in. You can get a really nice, uh, smooth surface from that. Mm, I actually didn't but, know um, that. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's it's quite common. Uh, Joey Vandersteeg has done a pretty good video on that kind of stuff as well. Uh, when he was building his anvils, oh, little micro micro anvils is great. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, forge welding, um, from a bladesmith's perspective, obviously, if I'm talking about forge welding, most people are going to know that I'm going to talk about Damascus or pattern welded steel. Um, in pattern welded steel, you're going to want to clean your steel. Like, I mean, there's a lot of people out there who say just rely on the flux and just, you know, throw it in there with a bunch of flux on it and that'll get rid of the scale. 
No, please don't. Um, forge when you're forge welding, clean your steel, grind every surface clean, and then stack it as tight as you possibly can. Weld it all up so that there's as little air gaps as possible. And then when you're doing your first heat for flux, heat to below critical temperature. So don't get it above critical temperature because at critical temperature, that's when you start developing a lot of scale. The, lo the lower amount of scale you can form before you put flux on it, the more successful your weld is going to be. So heat it up to just before critical temperature, flux it, don't overflux it. You don't need to dump half a bucket of borax on it. You don't only need a little bit to, to you know, kind of seep into those seams and then chuck it straight back in the forge and get it up to welding temperature and go for that first forge weld. Mm. When you're forge welding, and this is goes for axes and swords and you know any kind of billet of Damascus that you're going to make, you want to work from, in the case of axes, you want to work from behind the piece to the edge. So you want to work from the body of the axe out towards the edge because you're slowly squeezing out all of that borax and all of that scale and welding behind that wave if you like if you try and if you hit the edge first and then work your way back in towards the body what you've done is closed in all of that borax behind your weld and created a giant pocket of borax which now cannot weld um and the same goes for a damascus billet if you hit the edges of your damascus billet first uh and then hit the center you're going to have a nice big pocket of borax in the middle of that and borax Borax doesn't disappear. It's a liquid. It, if it, you trap that in a piece of steel, it won't weld. Like, nothing will weld there. What you want to do is squeeze that borax out. So you want to start by hitting the center of the billet and then go to your edges. Mm -hmm. So I normally run a line of hits down the middle of the billet and then go up one edge and then around the other edge. Mm -hmm. And that way I squeeze out all of that borax, all of that scale, and I make sure that I get a good weld. A lot of the times when forge welds fail, it's because you're tr you're trapping borax behind your weld rather than pushing the borax out with your weld. Mm. All right. So um, I think we have to continue on this topic for a later time. Uh, Absolutely. Because we are coming up on the hour mark, or we have even passed the hour mark. And that's we, how, we, that's, that's I, how it is. I've been rambling. Sorry. And I have to go out <laughs> and forge weld. <laughs> and I need oh, to change well. because I'm... Wearing pretty close. Uh, so just about, just about my bedtime, yeah. So um, if you want to ask us a question, suggested guest, or just chat about anything, you can send us an email at ask.forgecast at gmail.com or you can write to us and follow us on our Instagram at the.forgecast. Uh, you can find me at Nils Ögren on Instagram, YouTube, um, Nils Ögren Blacksmith, I think. And you can find Sam at Samtowns Blaysmith on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. I also have an Etsy page and a Patreon. Yes. And uh, yeah, so I hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, we'll be back next week. Take care. Thanks, guys.